Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 9. Psalm 9 will be our scripture this morning. And if you are using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, you will find Psalm 9 on page 451. Psalm 9, page 451. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples His deeds. For He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His word here this morning. Father God, we do ask that You would be with us as we hear Your word preached this morning. Father, according to Your promise, may it not return void, but may it have its effect. May it bring forth a harvest in our lives. By it, may we grow up in our salvation. By it, may we be fully equipped for every good work which you have prepared for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 9 is in many ways similar to the other psalms we have already studied, both this summer and two summers ago. 
In Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, we have heard David crying out to God for relief. We've heard him crying out to God for, for rescue from his present distress. Now there are, of course, differences between the Psalms. Some of the Psalms, like, like Psalm 3, focus on external enemies, on those who have, who have come and surrounded David. Other Psalms, such as Psalm 6, which we looked at last Sunday, they, they focus more on David's internal anguish, on his internal struggle. But the basic pattern of all of these Psalms is the same. David is in trouble, and he is crying out to God for deliverance. It's the same pattern we see again here in Psalm 9. And so as we look at one psalm of lament after another, you may be wondering to yourself, why do we take the time to study each of these psalms individually? Couldn't we have just sort of thrown them all in a pot and and drawn out some basic characteristics of laments and then moved on to something else? If all the psalms follow the same basic pattern, why why do we preach a sermon on each one? Why do I, why do, I do that? It's a, it's a fair question. And I want to give you two answers this morning. My simple answer is this. My, my simple answer is simply that, that we take the time to study each psalm individually because God gave us each psalm individually. This is God's Word. God is the one who decided to have 150 psalms, more than half of which express some form of lament. If God thought we needed so many songs of, of lament, we should probably take the time to, to study each one and to figure out why He gave them to us. And uh, in a sense, that's a sufficient answer. We don't need to say more than that. God gave them to us, so let's look at them. Let's, let's study them. But I think we can say more. I think we can discern something of the reason that God gave us so many songs of lament. Think about it for a moment. Think of the significance of that repetition. Why did God give us so many songs where, where, we, where we hear the psalmist crying out to God for deliverance from some sort of anguish, whether that be anguish from the world, whether that be anguish from just you know, hard providence, or whether that be anguish from his own internal struggles. Why did God give us so many of these songs? What does that repetition teach us. I want to suggest to you this morning that if God gave us these songs, He he gave them to us because He knew we were going to need them. He knew the nature of life in this fallen world. He knew the, the groaning that we all experience. In his first letter, Peter says this, he says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to to test you. Do not think that something strange is happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't think it strange. The, The fiery trials of this life are not something unusual. When you're asked to pass through the floods or or the fires, when you walk through the valley of the the shadow of death, that is not something surprising. That That is not something that should be unexpected. And yet, that's not the way we think. When we face external enemies, when we face internal anguish, when we face difficult Circumstances, we are tempted to think that, that 
Something has gone wrong with God's plan that somehow we have gotten outside of God's will that this shouldn't be happening. And let me say, in a sense, that's right. In a sense, that's, that's true. Things are not as they are supposed to be. We live in a world marred by sin. We, we live in a world full of misery. We live in a world that has fallen woefully short of that original very goodness that God declared. This is not the world as God created it. Things are broken. And the day is coming when, when God will make all things new. When God will put all things right. When, when evil will be no more and every tear will be wiped away. That day is coming and we long for it. At least we should. And so in a sense, yes, things are not as they are supposed to be right here, right now. Right here, right now, things are broken. And in that sense, our trials are Strange. They are unnatural. They, they don't fit in God's creation. But that's not what we mean when we say that things should not be happening in this way. That's, that's not what we mean when, when we say that, that this shouldn't be happening to me right here, right now. Normally, when we say that this shouldn't be happening, whatever this happens to be, what we mean is that this shouldn't be happening to me, not because... Things are not as they're supposed to be, but rather this shouldn't be happening to me because I'm a Christian. This shouldn't be happening to me because I'm a child of God. This shouldn't be happening to me because I'm one of those who are under his divine protection. He, he should have stopped it. He, he, should have, he should have done something else. Something is terribly wrong. God fell asleep at the wheel. Something is not right. That's what we tend to think. And that sort of thinking is, is reinforced by a culture, and even by a church, that is more than willing to lie to us. You see, there is a voice in the church right now. It's not a true voice. It is a, it is a false voice. But it is a loud voice that proclaims the message that if things are wrong in your life, it must be because you are outside of the center of God's will. They proclaim what we call a health, wealth, and, and prosperity gospel. They, they say that if you will become a Christian, God will bless you beyond measure with, with physical health and with material prosperity and with personal peace. If you become a Christian, you will experience your best life now. Such teaching is blasphemous. Such teaching is a lie. It misrepresents and, and distorts the, the gospel message. It, it misrepresents who God is. It, it causes His name to be dragged through the mud. But you need to hear me when I say that it distorts the gospel not by exaggerating its blessing, not by promising too much, not by being too optimistic, but just the opposite. It distorts the gospel by greatly Reducing it. One of my favorite lines in a, in a modern rock song says, He gave you everything you ever wanted, and it wasn't what you wanted. I know there may be some English teachers in here who say that's not great poetry, and they're, they're probably right. That, that line resonates with me, not because it's great poetry, but because it is a truth that I've been struggling all my adult life to learn. All my adult life, I have been struggling to learn that what I want is not what I want. 
What I want, the, the treasures and the, the pleasures of this life, the, the treasures and pleasures upon which I so easily set my heart, they do not and, and cannot satisfy. It's what we sang this morning in the song Satisfy. These things do not, these things cannot satisfy. As Jesus said, the one who seeks to save his life, the one who, who clings to it, the one who, who demands that all his desires be met, that one loses his life. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is a lie. It is a lie that is used by Satan to divert us from the lasting pleasures, the, the eternal pleasures, the, the pleasures forevermore that are at God's right hand. We talked about it at Sunday school this morning. We, we talked about the fact that if we are going to find shalom, and if we are going to find eternal blessing, then we must submit to God's design. We must be who He created us to be. We don't get to dictate to God. We don't get to define ourselves. We are creatures. It's, the, it's in the song that, that Jeff sang during the offertory. We were made by Him and we were made for Him according to His design. And that means that we find our joy, even as we confess this morning, in glorifying Him forever. Our joy and His glory are eternally bound together. We find our joy not in seeking our own. We weren't created for self-indulgence. We were not created for, for self-interest, for, for selfish ambition, for, for, for selfish advancement. This is, these are not what we were created for. But on the contrary, we were created to serve. We were created to, to give our life away and thereby find life to the full. We were created to devote our lives to one greater than ourselves. The health, wealth, and, and prosperity gospel asks you to renounce God for the pleasures of this age. It asks you to exchange the glory of God for, for the glory of creation. And when you put it that way, you begin to see that only a fool would make such an exchange. And yet we're all fools. We are all so easily deceived. We are all so, so easily Distracted, And I want to suggest to you this morning, that is at least in part why God allows us to experience the fiery trials of life in this fallen world. It's why He lets His children groan. He wants us to learn where true joy is. He wants us to learn where, where true satisfaction is. He wants us to learn where our foundation is. It is His severe mercy not to remove all the trouble that we could encounter in this life. But it's also why He gives us songs of lament. You see, He doesn't just leave us in the misery. He teaches us how to pass through it. He teaches us how to fight for our faith in the midst of the trial. And that's what these songs do. These songs teach us to fight for the joy of our salvation, even as we pass through the fiery trial. And we don't need just one such song. We need a whole hymn. We need again and again and again, from, from this angle and from that angle, to come back to these truths. We, we need to come to them again and again and again until they are woven into the very fabric of our soul. 
We need to learn that, that God is our refuge, that He is our stronghold, and that He is enough. In Him there is a satisfaction that this world cannot touch. No matter what we are called to go through in this life, it cannot separate us from the love of God. That's what these songs teach. And so we come back to them again and again and again. Not just because God gave us a lot of them, but because we need them. We need these songs. We need to return to these songs. We need to learn how to pray in the midst of our struggle. We need to learn how to lift up our eyes to the hills even as we groan. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, speaking of the same gospel that these psalms proclaim, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Let me say, it is no trouble for me to preach these same things again and again and again. And it is safe for you. The repetition makes us safe because the repetition calls us back to the truth again and again and again. And so with that in mind, with our, with our need before us, let us turn our attention to this song. And look how David teaches us to pray in Psalm 9. And I want to suggest to you that Psalm 9 can be roughly divided. The divisions aren't perfect, but it can be roughly divided into three parts. In verses 1 through 12, David looks to the past. In verses 13 through 16, David looks at the present. And in verses 17 and 18, he looks to the future before bringing it all to one finalist conclusion in verses 19 and 20. So let's, let's look at this pattern again, because this pattern is a pattern that we can follow. And by following this pattern, we can learn to hold on to our faith, even in the midst of the fiery trials. First, we must look to the past. Notice how David begins. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord. That's the ESV translation. I think that's in most of the modern translations, but you may have a translation that says, I will give praise to the Lord. You need to know that the word that David uses here is not the, the normal word for praise. It's, it's not the word from which we get our hallelujah, but it is, it's actually a word that is better translated as thanks. It is, it is thanksgiving. It's related to the thank offering that was offered in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It is an offering of thanksgiving, an offering that looks back on what God has done and praises Him for the past blessings. This is, this is a sacrifice and this is a, a prayer that looks back. It looks back at what David calls the, the wonderful or the wondrous deeds of the Lord. And think about that word. Think about that word wonderful. It's a, it's a word that has been severely watered down in our, our day. But if you, if you think about what the word means, it is a, it is a word that means that filled with wonder, filled with awe. A word that, that, uh, that inspires wonder in our hearts. Where we sit back and we just are almost speechless before the things that God has done. There's an I will recount the wonderful things, the, the, the wondrous things, the awe-inspiring things that God has done. So what are these wonderful things? Well, David tells us in verses 3 through 12, and he really categorizes them under two headings. And again, these are headings we've seen before, but it, it does us well to revisit them. In verses 3 through 6, he describes the righteous judgment of God. The, the first wonderful thing that, God, that David recounts is the righteous judgment of God against 
So we can look with me again at those uh, verses, verses 3 through 6. He says, when my enemies turn back, they, they stumble and perish before your presence or because of your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. That's an image that, that comes up again and again in this psalm. That, that God sits on the throne. That God rules over his creation. These men who, who shake their fist in God's face and say, we will not be ruled by you. At them God laughs. He, he holds them in derision. And he says, you will not dictate to me. I will rule over you. And notice verse 5, he says, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their, their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But David doesn't give us a lot of detail to know exactly what it is that he is referring to here. But, but we can look back over the history of Israel. We know the ways that, that God fought for his people. We, we know the ways that, that God judged the wicked. When God first calls his people out of Egypt, he judges severely the nation of Egypt. He, he casts Pharaoh down and he, he leaves the, the most powerful nation on the earth in utter ruins. He is a God who can condemn the wicked. And, and as the people trekked from Egypt towards the promised land, those nations that opposed them, God opposed in accord with his promise. Just as he had told to Abraham, those who curse you, I will curse. So he did. Those who opposed God's purposes, those who made themselves the, the enemies of, of God's people, they came under his judgment. They were uprooted. The, 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 the sinful nations of Canaan were cast out and displaced by the people of God. God was able to judge the wicked nations, those who made themselves his enemies. He was able to cast out. And we remember, of course, that, that even when the member of those nations repented and turned to the Lord, they were saved. Think of Rahab. Think of others turning to God in, in, in repentance and faith and being delivered. But those who obstinately stood against God, those who made themselves His enemies, they were righteously judged. God's rule was established. His judgment was proven true. This is where David begins. But of course he doesn't stop there. It's not just God's judgment uh, that he wonders at. It is this not God's judgment that he gives thanks for. In verses 7 through 12 he gives us a separate, a separate category of wondrous deeds. Notice what he writes. In those verses he, he talks about God's protection of those who know him. Of those who, who put their trust in him. He says, but the Lord sits enthroned. There it is again. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world in righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. He is a stronghold. He is a refuge for those who flee to him. For those who, who seek their salvation in Him. Those who take refuge in the Lord will not be put to shame. The people of Israel are delivered again and again when they cry out to the name of the Lord. 
These are the wondrous deeds of our God. These are the truths that we must hold together. In our day and age, as I've said before, we, we struggle with the idea of God's righteous judgment. But we must remember that it is God's righteous judgment of the wicked. It is His hatred of all that is evil that is our only hope. If God did not hate evil, if He did not promise to destroy it, if He did not promise to eradicate it from the earth, then we would have no hope of a new heavens and a new earth. This world would be the best that it could be. In fact, God's grace even now is restraining evil. This world would be far worse than it could be apart from His sovereign hand. God's hatred of evil is our hope, but it is not our full hope. Because if God only hated evil, if God only wiped out the wicked, then we would all be wiped out along with everyone else. For we, like the rest of mankind, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, were under wrath. But by God is a God who will not leave the guilty unpunished. He is also a God who delights to forgive iniquity. He is also a God who, who rejoices in the repentance of a single sinner. And so He is a God who invites all to come and speak, take refuge in Him. He says, if you will come and you will bow to Me, I will give you life. I will be your stronghold forever. And so we rejoice not only that God is going to put things right, not only that He's going to deal with evil, but that He is going to be merciful to those who repent, to those who turn from their sins to Him in faith. This is the very heart of the gospel. This is what David has seen over the years in the history of his people. These are the wondrous deeds that he remembers. These are, this is where his prayer begins. And how much more must we begin our prayers by looking to the past? By remembering who God is and what it is he has done in space and time. But you see, we have an advantage that David does not have. And we look not just to the, to the past of, of Israel, but we look back to the cross. Back to the cross of Jesus Christ where his, his justice and His mercy are woven together in a perfect unity that can never be torn asunder. In the cross, God is proven to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Him. Never miss the wonder of that verse. God is a God who deals with evil and yet justifies the ungodly. It's the gospel. The gospel that we have believed is the gospel upon which we stand. It is the gospel that, that lets us come into the presence of the consuming fire this morning without fear. Because we come in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so when you pray from the midst of your trial, whatever your anguish happens to be, whether it's enemies coming at you from the outside or whether it is the, the passions of your own flesh waging war against your soul, whatever the, the source of your distress, when you are under attack, when you are in need of deliverance, begin your prayers by looking to the past. Begin your prayers by remembering who God is for you in Christ. We don't cast our prayers into you know, some nameless oblivion. If anyone's there, please help. We pray to the God who has done wonderful things for His people. From the very beginning of creation. That's exactly what we see David doing when he looked to the present. Notice, having looked to the past, having recounted God's wonderful deeds, he moves on then to address his prayers to this wonderful God. He says, in beginning in verse 13, Oh, be gracious to me, O Lord, 
See my affliction from those who hate me. Oh, you who lift me up from the gates of death. And again, I've, I've told you before, but remember, when you see Lord like that printed in all capitals, that is Yahweh. That is, that is God's personal name. That is God's covenant name. This is the God to whom David prays. The God who has done wonderful things for his people in the past. The God whom David now addresses in the present. We address our prayers to Yahweh. We address our prayers to the Lord and Father of Jesus Christ. We do not pray generally. We do not pray ambiguously. We do not pray into uh, some dark void. We address our good, good Father. Our Father in heaven. We name Him when we pray to Him. And we come to Him Not only knowing who He is, but knowing what He will do for us. He is the God who lifts us from the gates of death. This is what what God does. This is is the God who, who rescued us from the darkness. This is the God who made us alive together with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. This is the God who who took the record of death, who who stood against us and nailed them to the cross. This is the God who who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light, transferring us from the, the dominion of Satan and bringing us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is the God to whom we pray. And so when we pray, we name God. We remember who He is and we address our prayers to Him. Asking Him to do what? Asking Him to be gracious. Asking Him to see our affliction. And of course, we're not asking Him to be some neutral human observer. We're not asking Him just simply to see. But in the Bible, when God sees, He acts. We, we, are, we are asking Him to see and to respond to our affliction. To come to our rescue. Not because we deserve it. But because He is good. We are, we are asking for His grace. We, we saw last week that David asked for grace because he was, he was suffering for his sins. Here, David's not suffering for his sins. Here, David is suffering because enemies are unjustly persecuting him. And yet, he still asks for grace. That's, that's important. Even when we are in the right, God doesn't owe us. God doesn't owe you your next breath. Every good gift is a gift. Every good gift is is from His grace. We come to God asking for His grace because He is good, because He delights to give good things to His children. And what is it that He is asking specifically? We we see it there in verses 15 and 16. He says, uh, The nations have have sunk into the pit that they have made. that They have been caught in their own own net. And the, the tenses there are difficult because... This is the, the section of the psalm where David is talking about the present, where he's making his petition known, and he's, he's speaking in the past tense. And it's possible that, that he is, again, now reflecting on things that have happened in the past, but I think what is going on in verses 15 and 16 is that David is saying, this is what I want to say once you have delivered me. Rescue me, that I might, look, at, look up, he says, rescue me, that I might rejoice in your salvation. Rescue me, that I might recount all of your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, saying these words, saying that they were caught in their own pit, saying that they were entangled in their own net, saying that you have made your righteous judgment known. That is what he is asking for. 
by God's grace, he is asking to be delivered. He is asking for just a little bit of God's kingdom to come right now. Let your righteousness come now. Put this evil down. Let them, let, let their plans recoil on their own head. Let them suffer what they intend to inflict on others. This is David's request. And as we see at the very end of the psalm, notice how he ends it. He says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations know that they are but men. I I love that phrasing. The key word, obviously, is this idea of of man or, or of men. But what does he say? He says, Let them know that they are men. Let them know that they are not God. Let them know that they are not Sovereign. They intend to do their own will, but let your will be done, God. Remind them that you are God and that they are not. This is how we must pray. This is how we must pray. We, see, when we pray, we don't pray just for God to be on our side and not theirs. That's not the way a Christian prays. God, be with us and not with, with them. It sometimes sounds that way to the world and it even sometimes sounds that way to Christians, but that's not the way David is praying. David is not saying, be with me and not with, with them. He's not saying, let my will be done and not theirs. He's praying to God, let your will be done. Let them remember that they are men and not God. Because your will will be done. Establish your righteousness. This is what David is praying. How do you pray when you find yourself in the midst of affliction? Do you demand that God get on board with, with your plan? Do you pray, God, do my will because I'm one of yours? Or do you pray, God, your will be done because you are good, because you are righteous, because your glory deserves to down to the ends of the earth? Remind them that they are men because you are good. But notice, having looked at the past, having made his petitions known in the present, David then looks to the future. In verse 17, David says, The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. I've seen David do this before. David often ends his psalms of lament by proclaiming absolute confidence in what God is going to do. God, this is what I know you are going to do. Not because I have seen it already. Some of the the more liberal commentators want to suggest that David must have come back and amended this psalm after he wrote it because clearly he's seen what God is going to do and now he's, he's talking about it. But no, that's not what's going on here. David is not recounting something that he has seen. He is speaking with confidence about what is yet to be. He is walking by faith and not by sight. We must learn to do the same. When we pray, we begin remembering who God is. We begin remembering what God has done for us, most especially in Christ. We we address our petitions to Him in the present. We we bring our present distress into His presence and we say, God, hear me because You are Yahweh, because You are the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we say, and we are confident that You will because You have said that You will do it and You are faithful. We express our faith. We express our faith even when we're not feeling it. We express confidence that God will keep His promise. We preach the gospel to ourselves. That our faith might be strengthened. And that we might be able to walk without losing heart. 
through whatever trial may come. This is the pattern that we are given. This is how we are taught to pray. Looking to the past. Looking at the present. Looking to the future. We walk by faith and not by sight. In a God who is always faithful. In a God who always keeps His word. In a God who sits upon the throne and does whatever He pleases. Knowing that what pleases Him is to work for the good of those who know His name. And put His trust, put their trust in Him. And because we serve such a God, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? And I Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might know you better, that we might see you more clearly, and that our unbelief might be overcome by belief, that our faith might become strong, and that we might not ever lose heart, but might continue to, to walk in a manner that becomes your children, and followers of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.